Why is crime in America on the rise? Are Americans becoming more violent? Or are bad criminal justice policies to blame? Could it possibly get any worse? Rafael Mangual has been researching criminal justice reform, decarceration, and depolicing over the last decade. He offers sobering insights and pragmatic solutions. To start, progressive prosecutors need to be held accountable for what they've done to our cities. So, Rafael, I'm so glad to talk to you because, honestly, I've been really worried. I live in Los Angeles, but anywhere I travel, even in Miami, it feels like crime is just soaring. I think parents around the country are having conversations about what is going on in our neighborhoods. I used to be able to just take a nice walk at night uh, in my suburban neighborhood in Los Angeles and feel totally safe. And I honestly don't feel safe anymore. I don't feel safe going and filling up gasoline in my car. There are specific areas within Los Angeles, Beverly Hills. I used to go out with my girlfriends. Now I refuse to go with any jewelry or anything that might seem expensive. It feels to me like there is more crime. And so I'm curious if it's in fact true. And I know that you've been studying this for a very long time. And so let's have a little conversation about what is happening in America what are specific neighborhoods where we need to be on alert? And what are the reasons that crime is really um, just on the rise? Uh, before we get into that, let's talk a little bit about your background and how did you become the person to speak to about criminal justice reform and crime in general? I guess by accident is this the short answer to that question. I mean, I'm originally born and raised in New York. My father was an NYPD detective. So from a very young age, I was very interested in criminal justice issues. I just thought it was the coolest thing that my dad was arresting people and fighting bad guys. And, you know, at the time, you know, when I was in kindergarten, uh, New York City had 2,262 murders that year. So, you know, crime was a big deal. You saw all these movies, these Charles Bronson movies on, you know, WPIX on the weekends where, you know, this was part of the narrative of New York was that we were the sort of center of America's crime problem. And so, you know, I, I grew up kind of with a very uh, clear understanding that this was a really important issue and also kind of having a first front row seat to the fact that my dad was, you know, uh, intimately involved in pushing back against it. And so that's where my interest started. As I grew up, I got to watch New York City, the best city in the world, no offense to L.A., um, transform. It was night and day. You went from 2,262 murders in 1990 to 292 murders in 2017. You know, when I was a kid growing up in Brooklyn, you know, I couldn't stay out, you know, past the time the street lamps went on. My parents didn't want to get me the nice bike that I wanted because it might make me a target for theft, right? It wasn't until we moved to Long Island that I got the GT Dino with the chrome body and all that stuff. Um, by the time I was a teenager, New York was safe. Mm -hmm. When I went to that college, was in the 90s. Yeah, so in the 90s, New York was, you know, again, one of the most dangerous cities in the world, right? I'm a little kid. You know, I'm born in 1986, so 1990, I'm four years old. We moved to Long Island in 1996 when I'm 10. By the time I'm 18 and I'm going out with friends, we're going out in the city. We're staying out until 2 or 3 in the morning. We never felt unsafe. Mm -hmm. And I went to college in New York City and, again, just really enjoyed... I would ride the subway home from the bar at, you know, 3 o'clock in the morning. You'd take a nap and miss your stop. You never felt like you were putting your life at risk. And so I just really, I think, had a very intimate understanding of how valuable a commodity public safety is for a city. It, you know, New York became the sort of place that you never wanted to send your children to go to school, to 
the place that people from all over the country and the world were moving to start their lives over, to start new careers, to go to college. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I developed a real appreciation for the importance of getting public safety right. And, you know, as I got older, I started paying attention to these debates. And when I got to college, I realized very quickly that there was a large and growing cohort uh, of New Yorkers that didn't fully appreciate the benefits that they were enjoying. And so when I was a sophomore in college, sitting in a sociology class, and we had a guest speaker who was an ex-con. It was a guy who uh, had just been released from prison after serving time under the Rockefeller drug laws, which were our mandatory minimums uh, for um, you know cocaine and heroin offenses. And he gave this diatribe about how the NYPD was racist and how the criminal justice system was racist and how you know, it, it was all a rigged system and it was evil and we needed to dismantle it. And even back then was calling for defunding the whole thing and abolishing prisons. And I remember just sitting there and, and you know, with 200 other you know, first and second year uh, college students just thinking, this is crazy, but I didn't have a vocabulary to lean on and pushing back. And that was sort of the start of my intellectual journey. I went home, I went on Ask Jeeves, which was the, the popular search engine back then before wow. Google became what it was. And I started researching, you know, what could I have said in response if I wanted to push back? And I came across the work of the Manhattan Institute and George Kelling and James Q. Wilson and John DeLulio and these thinkers that were doing the hard work in the 1990s to make the case for the hardening of the criminal justice system that produced the benefits in the form of the crime decline. And I really wanted to be a part of that. So as I got through college, I kind of tried to figure out like how I could put myself on a path to do this kind of work, which is weird because you don't meet many college students no. who say, I want to work for a think tank when I grow yeah. up. But I, I started reading the resumes of people whose work I admired, people like Heather McDonald and John DiLulio and you know, it just seemed like everyone either had a PhD in the social sciences or a law degree. And so I didn't want to go get a PhD, so I went to law school and just got really, really lucky in that I, you know, had a friend of a friend who worked at the Manhattan Institute, which, you know, kind of became a connection. And before I knew it, I was interning as a law student, and then I got a full-time job offer. And it's been the most rewarding possible Did you career. consider being a police officer like your father? I did. I did. So my senior year of college, I took the LSAT um, and I also took the NYPD exam. And I got a perfect score on the NYPD exam. So, you know, they give you a list number, um, which, uh, you know, sort of tells you the order in which you'll be hired within your test cohort. And my list number was one. So I had the highest score okay. in my test cohort. And I was really excited about this. And uh, so I went home and I told my dad, who's an NYPD uh, you know, alum. And I said, hey, Pop, you know, I, I, I took the NYPD exam and my list number is one. Isn't that great? And his face just changed. You know, rather than being happy, you could tell that he was visibly disturbed. And, you know, I was a little, you know, taken aback and a little put off and asked him, you know, what's, what's the deal? Why, you know, why don't you seem excited? And he was like, when you think you're, you're crazy if you think I want you to be a cop. Why? You know, it's crazy because this was 2010, kind of before all the craziness that yeah. we're living through now. But even back then, you know, he was saying, you could see the writing on the wall. He was like, no one, you think you're going to go out and save the world? No one is going to appreciate the effort that you put in. At the first chance that they get, they will throw you under the bus the second you make a mistake, the second you do anything that looks bad on camera, that we plastered on the front even page. Back then, even back then. This was when? 2010. It's amazing that even back then they felt that way. Imagine what police officers feel yeah. now. Yeah. No, it's, it, I mean, that has been the one institution that has been derided and degraded at a level I don't think anyone has ever really seen a public institution like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, go through. And it's it's been really problematic, you know, not not just for um, police recruitment and retention, which it has been. I mean, we've seen a massive decline in the class sizes of academies and 
in the number of police officers working in urban jurisdictions, but it's also been disastrous for the quality of policing. If you make policing the sort of job that only people without options want to do, Mm -hmm. the results are going to eventually start to show that, which is ironic because a lot of the vitriol is coming from people who say they want better policing, who say they're reform advocates. Yet at the same time, they are pushing a narrative that is both unfair, unjust, and untrue. And the effect of that narrative is to make this profession less likely to be inhabited by the kind of pro-social, high-performing, highly motivated people that produce good results. Mm -hmm. And who's going to fill the void? It's going to be the second tier, the people who are more likely to make mistakes, who are less likely uh, to follow the law, who are more likely to sort of succumb to their... Just less motivated in general. Yeah, exactly. And that's not going to be good for anybody. Right. I don't think it's just in my mind or my friend's mind that crime is rising. I don't live in downtown L.A. Mm. I live actually in suburbia. And as I mentioned, there there is just a rise in crime. There's a rise in break-ins. You know, I don't know if they will call it small crimes because I don't think it's small crimes. But there is a rise which begs the question, what is happening? Is it bad policy? Is America becoming more violent? Um, why are we seeing more crime from from your research? Yeah, I mean, I think bad policy is is definitely one of the biggest uh, explanatory factors here. I mean, and, you, and you're not wrong. Crime is moving in the wrong direction. So 2020 saw the single largest one-year spike in homicides in American history. Over 100 years of data that we've kept relatively reliably, we've never seen a 30% spike in the number of people killed in a single year. And, you know, the number went up again in 2021. It looks like it went down very, very slightly in 2022. But we are in a very precarious place. Um, At the same time in 2022, we saw lots of other crime categories sort of catch up. I mean, the sort of line, the standard line for people who were skeptical of the crime rise, um, even if they were forced to acknowledge the homicide spike in 2020, they would say in the very next breath, but crime overall is down, right? Robberies are still down. And burglaries are still down, which was true in raw numbers. What's interesting is that some researchers actually looked into this and figured out a way to account for the fact that because of the pandemic, people were spending much less time on the street, Mm -hmm. more time at home. Why is that important? Because if you spend less time on the street, you're less vulnerable to a street robbery. If you spend more time at home, your home is less vulnerable to a burglary because most people don't want to break into a house that's full of people, right? They want to break into an empty house. We saw car thefts spike in 2020. Why? Fewer people were using their cars. Mm. They were leaving them on the street for longer periods of time, right? That leaves them more vulnerable. So what these researchers did was they actually controlled for the amount of time that you were spending in public. And they looked at robberies and aggravated assaults. And your chances of being victimized, even in 2020, when those raw crime numbers went down, they were elevated. So the criminals remained criminals. Yes. What's really changed... um, really in the last decade, decade, you know, maybe 15 years, uh, has been our policy orientation, right? So in the 1960s and 70s, criminal justice policy was fairly lenient. We didn't have a ton of people in prison and jail. You know, there was a big shift, you know, in in terms of American jurisprudence that that made criminal justice systems more flexible, a little more friendly to potential offenders. But in the 1980s and 90s, we really started to harden the system in response to the crime spike that we were seeing back Right, then, there was right? the broken windows, there's the yeah. three strikes. Three strikes, truth and sentencing regimes, you know, um, more proactive uh, uh, policing, the incorporation of data into the depl- you know, to inform the deployment of police resources. All of these things kind of harden the criminal justice system at all levels. But what we've seen is really since about 2010, if not earlier, is a 
level of discomfort with maintaining a system that provided those benefits in the face of a crime problem that was severely diminished compared to what it was. And so there's been a longstanding push by activists to dismantle that system, to erode those protections. And so what we've seen on the policy front is a movement that has systematically lowered the transaction cost of committing a crime in the United States, while at the same time raising the transaction cost of enforcing the law by, mm. you know, for example, arrests down like 25% over the last decade between 2009 and 2019. The prison population is down about 24%. But isn't that a good thing, having that's, less prisoners in prison? That, that's what people say. Isn't that what they're saying? That's what they say. The problem is, is that the sort of people who are likely to wind up in prison are very, very likely to offend when they're not in prison. And so we've lost out on the incapacitation benefits as a result of the decarceration that's happened over the last decade. We've seen that at the prison level. We've seen that at the jail level. We've seen that with arrests. We've seen declines in the number of police officers. We've seen a decline in proactivity among the police officers that remain on the job. So not just arrests, but also traffic stops, pedestrian stops. Right? There's a 90% decline in stops and frisks in New York City. At the same time, we've seen the advent of the progressive prosecutor movement, where now some 40 million Americans are living in jurisdictions with self-described progressive prosecutors who are choosing not to prosecute whole categories of crime, are choosing not to pursue sentencing enhancements like three strikes, are choosing to affirmatively uh, support parole bids for people who have gone through their office, uh, or who are choosing to limit the ability of their line prosecutors to pursue um, pretrial detention, for example. We've seen bail reforms, discovery reforms. I mean, are you sensing a theme here? Everything that's been done over the last decade has made it easier to commit crime and less costly to commit mm -hmm. crime. We've also seen a police reform movement that has really constrained the power of police, that has increased federal oversight of police, that has imposed on police unfunded mandates to report data, to collect evidence, to you know, spend enormous amounts of money to house all of the body cam footage that gets recorded. I mean, the, you know, the, 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 the bytes upon bytes upon bytes of data that has to be kept on servers. I mean, that's expensive. No one's paying for that but the departments, which means that we have fewer resources to dedicate to those kind of traditional law enforcement functions. So everything has been unidirectional on the criminal justice policy front. And I think that when you lower the cost of something, you tend to get more of it. And when you raise the cost of something else, you tend to get less of that. And that's exactly what we've done to crime commission and law enforcement. And so it's not really surprising to me at all that we're at a point in which we're seeing crime numbers move in the wrong direction all over the country. Now, it is hitting most of America, right? Which is to say that, you know, there are very few communities that have seen all crime, you know, categories remain static. But when we're talking about the more serious kinds of violence, shootings, homicides, armed robberies, aggravated assaults, those do tend to be very, very hyper-concentrated, both geographically and demographically. And so, you know, you and I are lucky in that, you know, we're now suburban residents who can benefit from the degrees of removal from the sort of crime that's concentrated in urban centers and around urban centers. And, but that's, that's a really important story to tell because the people who have been pushing this reform agenda Mm -hmm. They do it in the name of the disadvantaged. They do it in the name of inner city communities. They do it in the name of low-income minority neighborhoods. That right, they or say, fighting racism. Right, right. There's something to their argument, right? It is true that the costs associated with a robust law enforcement apparatus, whatever those costs are, those costs are disproportionately borne by low-income minority communities, right? We see that black men are five times more likely than white men to end up in prison. They're significantly more likely to be arrested. They are, you know, are overrepresented, you know, if you use their 
a portion of the population as the denominator among people against whom police use force. All of these disparities in enforcement are taken to be prima facie evidence of racism built into the system. And that's a huge motivating factor for the kind of policy agenda that we've seen take shape over the last 10, 15 years. The problem, though, is that that same agenda has exacerbated the risks faced by this very community, which is why the subtitle of my book is, is, is what it is, right? It's, it's, it's who, you know, what the push for decarceration and depolicing gets wrong, but also who it hurts most. And that's really fascinating um, because it, it reveals an irony that the people pushing this agenda haven't been forced to really grapple with yet. I mean, if you look at my home city of New York, for example, just to start with the geographic concentration of crime. So three and a half percent of our street segments Right, a street segment would be one side of a city block, both sidewalks. So corner to corner, two sidewalks. That's one street segment. Three and a half percent of our street segments see 50% of all the violence. Mm -hmm. That is an enormous amount of concentration. One percent of the street segments see 25% of all the violence. Now, demographically, if you just look at shootings, 97% of all shooting victims in New York City in 2021 were either black or Latino. Every single year for which we have data, a minimum, of 95% of all shooting victims are either Black or Latino. I can assure you that Black and Latinos do not constitute anywhere close to 95% of New York City's population, right? So when we talk about the more serious kinds of crime, we have to keep in mind that these are phenomena that are very, very hyper-concentrated in very small slices of our country and among very tight social networks within those neighborhoods, right? Because even in the highest crime neighborhood in America, the vast majority of residents are law-abiding good people who just want to go about their lives. So you would say that likely the, the folks that are involved in, in those crimes from those particular neighborhoods uh, are the ones that are most likely going to be the ones who end up in jail, yeah. right? And so that's why it's disproportionately, you know, black and brown Absolutely. Uh, I mean, if you're, gonna, in there? if you're going to look at enforcement disparities in the vacuum, you're not going to get very far in, in terms of a pursuit of truth, right? And that's one of the biggest beefs that I have with, you know, the reform movements that they... They focus on these disparities in enforcement, and they ignore the fact that there are other factors that are race-neutral that you need to control for in order to do a valuable analysis, right? Like, if we're going to learn something, we have to be honest about, you know, how we handle the data. You can't just say, well, this group is overrepresented compared to what their portion of the population is, because that presupposes that the portion of the population is a good predictor of what they should be within a particular setting, like prison. No, the right denominator is you know, the proportion of criminal offenders that they constitute or criminal victims, right? I mean, that's a really important thing. Like I said, the victims of these things are disproportionately low-income minorities, right? Why is that important? Because if police resources, if law enforcement resources are going to be deployed in response to where crime concentrates, which is exactly what it should be, mm -hmm. well, then that means police are going to have disproportionately more opportunities to interact with whatever demographic groups are overrepresented in those geographic spaces. And we do know crime is concentrated geographically. If police go there and we know that Black and Latino residents are overrepresented in those communities, well, then police are going to have disproportionately more contacts with those people. We need to add that context into how we talk about enforcement disparities. The other thing about how people talk about racial disparities in enforcement is that it looks at enforcement as if it's the only output of the criminal justice system, right? But it's not, right? Yes, police make arrests, police use force. You know, prosecutors prosecute, judges sentence people, you know, to time in prison and jail. But when the criminal justice system operates well and it achieves its goals, crime goes down. Mm -hmm. And no one wants to talk about 
how evenly or unevenly distributed the benefits of crime reductions are. And they're just as unequally distributed as the costs. And when you incorporate the distribution of the benefits into the analysis, that really complicates things for people on the left because they now have to confront the following rhetorical question, which is, why on earth would a system that is allegedly designed and operated for the specific oppression of low-income minority communities so disproportionately benefit low-income minority communities when the system works, when the system achieves its stated ends, when the system does what police chiefs say they're setting out to do, right? And if you look at the homicide decline between 1990 and 2014 in this country, it added a full year of life expectancy to the average black man's life. That is an enormous public health benefit. There's a researcher who did a paper on this that found that the, the public health equivalent of that would be to eliminate obesity altogether, right? So a full year of life expectancy for black men. How much life expectancy did it add for white men? 0.14 years. That's an enormously unequal distribution. Mm -hmm. And so if you have police chiefs, prosecutors, judges in criminal courts who say that their goal, what motivates them is to control crime, well, then you have to read that as an anti-racist agenda if there ever was one. Right. Because we know who's going to benefit the most from that project if it succeeds. And it's not rich white people. It doesn't feel like their goal is actually to minimize crime. The message that we're hearing is that their goal is to lower the number of criminals in prison yeah. and lower the racial uh, discrepancy, I guess, in arrest. But you never hear them actually say that what they want to do is actually reduce crime. You see that in their policies, yeah. right? Well, I think that's true, especially for prosecutors where we've seen the growth of the progressive prosecutor movement. I think that's true for judges, which have moved significantly towards this kind of decarceration orientation. I think it's less true for police. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons I say that is because, you know, if you, I mean, if you just read a story about a homicide or a terrible crime that's being committed in a city, pick your city, whatever, you know, jurisdiction you want to talk about, and they have any kind of detail about the suspect that's been arrested in that case, inevitably, you will see that that person has 10, 15, 20 prior arrests. They were out on bail. They were out on probation. They were just arrested last week and let go. What does that tell us? That tells us the police are still doing a pretty good job of spending their resources responding to crime and, and concentrating on, on people who pose a significant risk. But it also tells us that the rest of the criminal justice system is not operating as a backstop in the way that it used to. And that's really been the most significant change, right? Police are still making arrests. They're not being as proactive as they were. But that's out of, I think, an understandable fear that they're not going right. to be given a fair shake if they make a mistake, right. if they do something that looks bad on camera. But when they do make an arrest, prosecutors are less likely to prosecute. Mm -hmm. When they do make an arrest and the prosecutor prosecutes, right. the judge is less likely to hand down a serious sentence. So the police officer feels, why bother? Exactly. Why, take a, a risk? Risk? why exactly. take a risk with your own life, with your own career? when That's the right. threshold is so high, and then you deliver the criminal, and then the, basically the prosecutors and the judges do nothing with it. Right, yeah. Right. And even if they go to prison, the first chance that they get before the parole board, they get let out, right? And, and so, you know, this is, this is really the, the, the kind of story that motivates me to do the work that I do. You know, I'm just sick and tired of reading just example after example of some tragic crime that was essentially avoidable. Avoidable, why? Mm. Because the person who committed, who committed it could have been behind bars. Right. It was a political choice right. to say, we're going to let him out. It was a political choice to say, we're going to give this kid probation, even though this is his third gun charge. It's a political choice to say, no, we're not going to pursue the third strike uh, enhancement of an extra 25 years in this case, which means this guy's going to be out in four. Mm -hmm. Why do we let them get away with it? I, I mean, you know, 
it's, I, it's, it's exactly the question I was going to ask you. I didn't mean to cut you off, but yeah. like, can you describe to me who are these progressive prosecutors? Mm-hmm. What do they, like, who are they? What are they doing? Why do they believe what they believe? I mean, I think they're genuine, true believers. Uh, I think they're wrong. <laughs> yeah. Are they um, just naive that they think that if they let the criminals out, what is their claim and why are people I think, electing them? I think they make a few claims. Why are people electing them, I think, is, a, is an interesting question because, you know, the progressive prosecutor movement, for all its electoral success, does not seem to have a, a particularly wide mandate, which is to say that if you dig into the details of these elections, right, they're mostly happening in deep blue cities, which means that the election outcome is essentially decided by the Democratic primary. And if you look at the turnout in Democratic primaries in these cities, it's not very high. So I think the reason for why people are voting them in is that not very many people are voting them in, but the people who do participate are just not particularly aware of how important these races are. And so that's, that's, I think, a big part of it. But, you know, in terms of what these progressive prosecutors believe, I mean, these are people who are either defense attorneys as their background or civil rights litigators. And... I think they genuinely believe the standard story about criminal justice, that, you know, we have a mass incarceration problem, that, you know, the system is, is, is the hammer comes down way too easily and, you know, people are being oppressed. And I think a lot of them think that prison or jail is itself criminogenic. Yes. So I've they'll say that. prison or jail, it's like a college for criminals. So they're going to come out so much worse off that it actually pays to divert them because you're reducing crime by not creating more of it. Now, This is where things get a little technical, because if you want to actually evaluate the effect of a treatment like incarceration on an outcome like recidivism, Mm -hmm. the gold standard in social science would be to conduct a randomized control trial, like an experiment. Now, you can't ethically experiment within the context of the criminal justice system, right? Because the implications are just disastrous. We can't say like, okay, we know you murdered this guy. We're going to let you out just to see what happens, right? Like that's an unethical experiment. So we can't, we can't randomize very much, right? And so, you know, we have to account for the fact that there are really good reasons why people who get sent to prison get sent to prison. There are really good reasons why people who get diverted get diverted. And so if you're trying to build out an analysis that's going to tell you what the effect of incarceration is, mm-hmm. You want to try and find little natural or quasi-natural experiments in the data. So what's random about the criminal justice process? One thing is who your case is assigned to in terms of a judge or in terms of a prosecutor sometimes, right? So like some prosecutors, some judges are more harsh than others, right? So what you do is you look at a jurisdiction and you categorize judges along a spectrum of leniency. And you put, you know, the harsh ones at one end of the spectrum, the lenient ones at another one, and you you kind of take out everyone in the middle. And you only look at the cases that get randomly assigned to the harsh judges and randomly assigned to the lenient judges. Now, you want to randomize for the offender, which you can't possibly do. So you get a big data set and you figure out, okay, like what kind of offenders are engaged in conduct that's not so serious that incarceration is a foregone conclusion, but also not so low level that, you know, the diversion is a foregone conclusion, right? So like you identify a pool of offenders for whom whether they go to jail or prison is essentially a coin flip based on the judge that they draw. And for that subset of the population, there are some studies that show that prison produces worse outcomes. But here's the problem. There is a difference between the kind of marginal offender that that body of research is looking at and the typical prisoner. The typical prisoner is a much higher risk proposition. And so there's a real limit to what that research can tell us. And this is a really dramatic error that the progressive prosecutor movement is making to the extent that they're relying on this argument. Because they're relying on a body of research and grafting it onto a population that it really doesn't apply to. Mm -hmm. 
And so it's a real major error. But the other thing is that I don't think they fully appreciate incapacitation as a rationale, right? And when we talk about prison or incarceration, there are a few things that, you know, make that a sensible um, policy response. One is incapacitation, which refers to the crimes that are avoided when someone's locked up, right? If they're behind bars, they can't victimize anyone in their community mm -hmm. unless they escape, which is very, very rare, right? Then you have deterrence, right? By punishing people, we are discouraging other people in society not to... Right, the message it sends. Exactly, they, they want to avoid that punishment. You have rehabilitation, right? By virtue of, you know, our ability to coerce people, we can put them into programming that might, you know, or therapy that might help reduce their recidivism or drug treatment. Um, and then you have retribution, which is, you know, you want to sort of satisfy society's desire to express their social condemnation of criminal behavior. And if we were reading this along a scale of importance, for me, incapacitation is at the top. Mm -hmm. Deterrence Just keep comes, them away from our kids. Exactly. Deterrence comes in at a relatively dis distant second. Rehabilitation and retribution are toward the very, very bottom. And the reason I say that is not because I'm against rehabilitation, but I'm a realist. And if you look at the literature on rehabilitation, it is pretty dismal. We have no idea. We have no idea how to reliably rehabilitate the median prisoner in the United States today. The idea that there is some readily deployable formula of therapy or treatment or medicine that can be given to cure criminality uh, and that, you know, that we can scale that solution across an incarcerated population of 1.8 to 1.9 million people. It's, it's just, there's no basis for it in the literature. If you read the studies on rehabilitation, the findings are mixed at best. Generally, they show null effects. And the programs that do show promise, you see a lot of the same problems with the evaluations. One is selection bias. They're dealing with a population of offenders that either applied for the program or they're dealing with a program that excludes certain kinds of offenders. So you're already dealing with a subset of offenders who might be more amenable than the median population in prison uh, to correction on, on some of these things. Another thing is like the scalability problem, right? The programs that succeed, they require very intense, either one-on-one -on -one or small group therapy, multiple sessions a week. I think, you know, the sort of general uh, thesis in the literature is that you need about 200 hours um, in order to achieve, you know, reliable movement on the rehabilitation front. But when you have, you know, what, 700,000 people in prisons, mm -hmm. um, getting yeah. 200 hours for all of them? Right. Right. That's an incredibly right. huge lift that we don't have, you know, the, the the capacity to fulfill, right? I mean, the CDC is already predicting shortfalls of mental health workers um, over the next decade that's going to be pretty significant. What makes us think that there are enough qualified mental health workers who can deploy these programs with reliable quality across a really wide population of offenders that varies um, in settings that vary? Um, that's going to be willing to take a job in a prison that's usually in a rural area for a municipal salary and work with pathological maniacs on a day-to-day -day basis as opposed to going into private practice and charging someone, you know, $800 an hour for therapy and, you know, making $500,000 a year while working out of the basement of their Park Slope Brownstone, right? Yeah. I mean, this is... I mean, I know there are a lot of great nonprofits that try to do that work. Sure. I mean, one of the points that I, I learned from you and really contradicts what I've been hearing, especially in the media, is that people are being sent to jail or prison for very low crimes. Mm -hmm. And what I've learned from you in reading your book is that people actually negotiate down 
their sentence yes. by taking responsibility for a lower crime or lesser crime. Can you explain that to me? Because I think when we're looking at the ledgers or the numbers, it appears as if the folks that are sitting in prison are sitting in prison for these tiny little you know, criminal activities, but yeah. that in fact is not No, that correct. is not the case. That's a story. And that's pretty significant when yes. we understand that. Yes. So if you just look at 2021 data on people in prisons, in state prisons in the United States, state prisoners account for about nine out of every 10 people in prison. 62% of state prisoners are in primarily for a violent felony. Mm -hmm. If you include weapons offenders, you get to more than two thirds of the prison population just there primarily for a violent offense or a weapons offense, right? The rest of the people are there either for property felonies like burglary, which is a serious crime, mm -hmm. arson, car theft, uh, grand larceny, and then you have drug offenders, which are about you know 12 to 13 percent of prisoners. And you know people kind of latch on to those kinds of offenses, and they say, well, these are low-level, non-violent you know offenders. Why are they behind bars? What purposes they is this really serving? Um, and there are a couple of responses to that. One is that the idea that there exists static categories of offenders, right? The idea that the nonviolent drug offender is something that exists ignores a really important reality about criminal offending, which is that most offenders don't specialize. So if you just look at drug offenders and you look at the recidivism data, what you'll find is that 75% of people who get released from prison after serving time primarily for a drug offense mm -hmm. will be rearrested for a non-drug crime. More than a third will be rearrested for a violent crime specifically. The other thing is that if you're looking at the typical person in a U.S. prison, the average prisoner, you're looking at someone who has between 10 and 12 prior arrests and between five and six prior convictions. So their criminal histories already exclude them from the category of low-level offender, right? These are people who have had multiple bites at the apple. The idea that prisons are overflowing with first-time offenders who have engaged in low-level conduct is nonsense. I was going to say that word there, but it is nonsense, right? I mean, only 40% of state felony convictions even result in a post-conviction prison sentence, which means that 60% of the time, a judge is either sentencing someone to time served in uh, pretrial detention or to a sentence of probation or the case is getting diverted into a diversionary program. So, you know, prison isn't even the most common response to a felony conviction, let alone a misdemeanor conviction. So, yeah, I mean, the idea that this is something that's reserved for low-level people is not. The other thing you have to understand, too, is like when you're looking at official conviction data, we're looking at the crimes that people were actually convicted of. Now, the vast majority of convictions do not come via trials. I know lots of people watching may have watched, you know, Law and Order, and they think that every case, you know, gets what? litigated. It's not like yeah. Hollywood. No, no, not at all. Like, something like ninety-five percent of cases are resolved via plea bargaining. Mm -hmm. Explain that because that is so important for people yes. to understand. So most of the time, if someone gets arrested, charged with a crime, indicted their case is going to be resolved by coming to an agreement with the prosecutor to avoid trial, right? So in exchange for allowing the state to save the time and money that it would take to go through the ordeal of a trial in order to convict them by a jury of their peers, the state will usually offer a benefit. And that benefit will come in the form of either downgraded charges, right? So, you know, instead of first degree, we'll charge you with third degree. Or the dropping of charges altogether, right? So you were charged with, you know, illegal possession and, uh, you know, of a controlled substance and illegal possession of a firearm, right? So we'll drop the firearm charge. You plead guilty to the substance charge and, you know, your sentence will be X instead of X plus 10. So not only does the official conviction record often understate the severity of the crime that someone actually committed, when you're looking at the prison population data, the categories 
of, of prisoners, right? If someone's categorized as a drug offender, that doesn't, all that means is that the offense that they are serving the most time for was a drug offense. It doesn't mean that that was the only offense that they were convicted of. So if, for example- And it might even be their minimal offense, correct? Their well, smallest offense? Because no, no, no. they may have done a plea bargain. Right, plea, well, yes, yes, right? yes, exactly. So that so may they, have been the right, case, right? right? They may have committed a worse crime, but they were willing to take the plea bargain on a exactly. lower crime. Exactly. And so that's where they're categorized, exactly. right? So, so like, let's say you're arrested, you've got a kilo of cocaine in your trunk, and you've got an illegal pistol on your hip. Right, so you're arrested, you're charged with illegal firearm possession and illegal drug possession. But because of the amount of drugs that you had in the trunk, the sentence that you're facing, let's say, is 10 years, right? Whereas a sentence that you're facing for the illegal gun is three years. Even if you're convicted of both of those offenses, the official uh, prison data will categorize you as a drug offender because the drug offense carries the harshest sentence. Mm -hmm. So even the, the categorization doesn't necessarily reflect the seriousness of the population. You know, the biggest thing that I think illustrates the risk that progressive prosecutors and other people pushing for decarceration are engaged in is that the recidivism numbers are horrendous. Mm -hmm. Somewhere between 80 and 83 percent of people who are released from a state prison will go on to reoffend at least once over 10 years. Mm -hmm. On average, those individuals will generate five rearrests in that period. And that, again, understates the severity of the problem. Why? Because the vast majority of crime that gets committed doesn't get reported. And the vast majority of crime that gets reported doesn't result in an arrest. It's not cleared. So the FBI up until 2020 would, would actually keep detailed uh, records of clearance rates for the eight index felonies that are, are tracked. These are sort of thought of as the eight crimes that give us a general picture of crime. So there are four violent index felonies and four property index felonies. If you break out the violent index felonies, murder, rape, you know, slash sexual assault, robbery, and aggravated assault, and you look at the clearance rates, say, over the last 10 years, they hover at about 47 to 48%, which means that more than half of those offenses, which are the most serious kinds of felonies that you can commit, don't result in an arrest. Mm -hmm. Then you look at the property index offenses, so burglary, grand larceny, grand larceny auto, and arson. The clearance rate hovers at around 18%, mm -hmm. which means that the vast majority go unanswered for so when you're looking at the re-arrest numbers for people who are getting out of prison, understand that for every arrest, they have probably committed a, a significant number of crimes that they did not get caught for. Yeah. And this is something that's been confirmed by surveys of prisoners in the past where we've, you know, asked people, um, you know, how many crimes did you commit in the past year? And then you can kind of compare that with their arrest histories and, you know, see that, that there's a delta. And so it's, you know, that has been one of the most disastrous misconceptions that has informed policy, unfortunately. And, it, you know, I think has really just exacerbated the risks. But they've exacerbated the risk primarily for the communities that can least afford to right. bear more of it. Right. Again, I mean, if you look at the national data, the black male homicide rate is 10 times higher than the white male homicide rate. That is one of the starkest and most persistent disparities in the criminal justice data sphere. And it just blows my mind that that doesn't do more to motivate, you know, so-called progressives yeah. to rethink the policy agenda that they've been pushing for the last decade. Right. Help support the communities, yeah. actually make police officers want to serve there yes. so they can protect people. I mean, the other new thing that I've been hearing a lot about is the um, cashless bail, mm. right? That has been another one of those agendas that you're hearing prosecutors claiming that this is their way of helping with racial, uh, you know, inequality, but seems to actually, again, hurt the very community that they purport to help yeah. 
what is the story behind this cashless bail stuff? Yeah, so and is it actually catching momentum? Is, is, oh, it's got lots of momentum. Like it's, it's got lots of momentum. It's happening all around the country at different levels, either you know through state policy, um, through municipal policy, but also through like you know agency policy, where prosecutors are just saying like, hey, we're going to place limits on the ability of our prosecutors to pursue pretrial detention of any kind. We this should is, explain what that means. Yeah. So this basically means the police officer finally catches right. the criminal. And they're up for uh, prosecution, right? But the prosecutor basically says, go home, roam free until you come in back in in, in front of the court, and then we'll deal with you. And so the the criminal gets caught, but then gets released right away with no no bail, no nothing, correct? Look, that has been how it it goes for almost all criminal offenders for almost all of time, right? The vast majority of people who get arrested are not flight risks, are not, you know, serious violence risks. And so it makes sense that the vast majority of people get released on their recognizance, right? And even the ones that have bail imposed, right, they're able to make bail. And so they get out in a day or two if, you know, they even go to jail at all. What, What the bail reform movement is really built around is a particular problem, which is a problem I'm sympathetic to, right? There's this idea that if we heavily rely on monetary conditions on release, right, on cash bail, then what you're essentially doing is building out a system in which a dangerous but rich defendant Mm. gets to go free when a harmless but poor defendant gets stuck behind bars, Mm. right? I don't want to see that happen just Mm. as much as, you know, the most progressive bail reformer doesn't want to see that happen, right? The question is, is how do we go about addressing that problem? And modern bail reform basically says, we're going to throw the baby out with the bathwater. We're going to essentially take cash bail off the table so that no one ever enters jail as a result of not being able to meet the monetary conditions that have been imposed on their release. But at the same time, we're not really going to do anything about the problem of releasing the dangerous people who really should be held Mm -hmm. behind bars. And so my response has been what we should do is reorient the pretrial release inquiry around risk instead of wealth. Right, So you get arrested, the prosecutor decides to pursue the charges, you come up at your arraignment, and the judge you know, makes a decision about whether or not you should be released, and if so, under what conditions, right? Should, do you have to post bail? Will you have to wear an ankle monitor? Will you have to go to anger management? Will you have to abide by a protection order? These are all conditions on release. Or are you a danger to your community? In which case, you're going to go into jail until we resolve your case. Now, What New York did, for example, is it significantly uh, reduced the circumstances under which uh, bail could be imposed, which means that people are no longer going to be entering jail as a result of not being able to come up with bail uh, at the the numbers that that they might have entered jail in years past. But New York also prohibits judges from considering the dangerousness of a given offender. And even in the jurisdictions, which, which, by the way, New York is the only state in the union with well, that rule. So I, 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 you got to explain that because yeah. it just it, it the stuff is so mind boggling that crazy. sometimes I don't understand whether I'm actually hearing clearly. It's okay. it's cr- you're so not the judge is not allowed to actually use critical thinking in judgment. Correct, correct. Judges are not allowed to judge one of the most important things in New York. So the guy can have thirty five hundred prior arrests, right? He can be up on a murder case. Um, you know, he can say, like, I'm probably going to kill somebody if you let me go. And a judge, by law in New York, is restricted to only the, the question of whether or not this person will return to court. 
So if someone says, I'll come back, but I'm also going to keep committing crime when I leave, technically a judge is supposed to release that person, right? That's unbelievable. So it's, it's unbelievable. But, you know, thankfully New York is the only state in the union with that rule. But in the other places that have done bail reform, even the ones that have done bail reform relatively responsibly, right? Like New Jersey is a good example of this, where on paper their bail reform was, was really good. But in practice, right, it matters the quality of the judges and prosecutors working within the system, right? So on paper, people still weren't getting put in on remand by virtue of the fact that they were dangerous. And so what you need is not just a good reform that allows judges to reorient the, the inquiry around risk, but you also need judges and prosecutors who are willing to pull that lever into appropriate cases. Mm -hmm. and what we're seeing is that there's been a lot of movement among the ranks of prosecutors and judges where that's not a guarantee anymore. Right. This isn't 1990 where you had prosecutors like Morgan Thau who were sort of on the same Motivated to keep everybody yeah. safe. I mean, what are they motivated by if it's They're not pursuing to reform? They see themselves as reformers first and law enforcement officers second. And the argument is basically that we're hurting children by denying the father figure uh, through incarceration. And, you know, it's I can understand why this resonates with a lot of people, including people on the right. But it's very, very wrong because it, it relies on a really big assumption uh, that makes a lot of sense. That they're amazing dads exactly. and husbands. <laughs> yes. I mean, you know, just like ask the basic questions here, right? Like the question is very, very obvious. Is the sort of person that's likely to end up in jail or prison the kind of person that's going to prove to be a reliable source right. of economic support and emotional support in their home? Right. The kind of person who is not going to expose their children right. to trauma that is going to succeed in the socialization process of younger children, right? I mean, the answer is there's no reason to think yeah. about this. I mean, again, we've gone through the criminal history data and through the recidivism data, right? We know, you know just from that that a huge portion of criminal offenders, particularly within carceral settings, are essentially antisocial in their disposition. And I'm using antisocial deliberately because that's a, it's a very important word. It, I'm using it in the clinical sense. There is a very, very large body of psychological research showing that even if you have two parents in the house, if one of those parents is antisocial in their disposition, that is going to produce significantly worse outcomes for the kids, even compared to kids who just have one parent that's pro-social, mm. right? So yes, two parents generally better than one. But if one of those parents is antisocial, the results are They're teaching really, them really that bad. behavior. It's not just that they're teaching them that behavior. That's part of it. They're exposing them to trauma that exacerbates existing behavioral mm -hmm. problems. But I think most importantly, especially when you're talking about younger kids who are still in the developmental stage, antisocial parents are just more likely to fail in the socialization process of children, right? Like, I think people have it in their heads that, you know, kids, because they're so angelic looking when they're born, are, you know, good inherently, mm -hmm. and they learn how to be bad. It's, it's backwards, right? Anyone who like- Anybody who has kids yes, knows yes, that, right? Who actually paid attention. Yes. They are uncivilized savages, <laughs> right. right? Like we teach we them. We all are, right? Exactly. We just need to learn, right? Exactly, right? So, I mean, there's this, uh, I can't remember his name now, but there's a, a psychologist in Canada who did this, you know, famous analysis that uh, found that, you know, your, your kind of highest risk of violent victimization is between the ages of like two and three. <laughs> Um, because you're around other toddlers in daycares and they hit you and they bite you and they pull your hair and they take your toys and, you know, but yeah. over time, our parents, our teachers, our community members. We teach them with consequence. Exactly. Right. Right. We, we teach them how to be 
pro-social, we teach them language so that they don't need to use violence, right? They can use their right. words and, you know, but that socialization process is not a given. Mm. It can break down. And it's much more likely to break down if the parent who's tasked with the socialization improvement is antisocial themselves, right. right? And so then the question becomes is, is there any reason to think that the typical person incarcerated is antisocial in his or her disposition? Mm -hmm. And the answer is yes, because we've actually surveyed prison populations and looked at the prevalence of something like antisocial personality disorder, which is a, you know, a psychological diagnosis. And in the general population among men, Antisocial personality disorder has a prevalency rate of about 2 to 4%. Mm. In prison settings, it varies between 40 and 70%. That is an enormous disparity and a huge clue as to what you're exposing kids to if you decarcerate and put these fathers back in the home. Mm -hmm. It's not at all a given that this is going to be a net positive for kids. And so researchers have actually started looking at this question. There have been a few studies that have actually looked at whether kids whose parents get incarcerated do better than similarly situated kids whose parents don't. And surprisingly to some, the findings have been that the kids whose parents go to jail do better. Mm. They have more educational attainment, fewer behavioral problems, they're less likely to get arrested. Same thing for sibling incarceration, right? If you have an older brother who goes to jail, there are a couple things that are going to happen. One is you might be deterred by seeing the system mm -hmm. come down on somebody so close mm -hmm. to you. But the other thing is, is that brother, if he doesn't go to jail, is more likely to introduce his younger brother into a criminal Bring network, them in. Right? And the younger brother's going to look up to the older brother. Yeah. And so it's only natural. And so what you have to do is really break the cycle. Mm -hmm. And the way that you do that is by extracting deeply pathological antisocial people from their communities. And that gives those communities the room to breathe. That makes those households more habitable places. It makes those kids' lives less traumatic, more stable and gives them opportunities that they wouldn't otherwise have. And this is counterintuitive for a lot of people. Right. But if you care about children's outcomes, you have to at least grapple with what this literature says. Right. And people just aren't willing to do that. And that's one of the things that I really wanted to change about our debate with this book. I think when you talk about the cycle, so much of it is also tied to the culture, right? Yeah. Police can do so much. A portion of it is these you know, progressive prosecutors and just the fact that a, you can't catch everybody. B, they're lowering uh, the sentencing. But then the other side of it, when we talk about the culture, this celebration of criminality, the yeah. music, uh, the environment. I mean, you talk about that environment growing up where you had to prove that you can be yeah. violent yeah. so that nobody will mess with yeah. you. That's a big part of it. And so you have this combination of the glorification of yeah. being violent in music and in, in these neighborhoods. Plus the fact that you know, we we are essentially not laying in the consequence for for criminals, and so yeah. you have these kids growing up in these environments where I mean that's pretty much all they know, and we're not willing to extract it out of their yeah. lives. Yeah, no, I mean I think culture plays a big role. I mean you know there's a there's a chapter in the book where I talk about you know the sort of culture of violence, and I draw a lot on the work of a researcher called Elijah Anderson, who wrote this really fantastic book that I encourage all of your uh, viewers to read. It's called Code of the Street. It was written in the early 1990s, and it's basically, you know, an ethnographic, anthropological assessment of northern Philadelphia in the early 1990s. And what he does is he sort of documents this street culture, this, this um, you know, set of social mores that guides day-to-day -day life in one of the most dangerous parts of America at the time, and still one of the most dangerous parts of America today. And, you know, what he finds is that violence is essentially elevated in these, you know, neighborhoods as a legitimate means of respect acquisition as a legitimate means of dispute resolution. And also 
what he finds is that violence actually is viewed by younger people as a defense mechanism. Mm. If I show that I am willing to be violent, if I display in my outward-facing appearance a comfort with and proximity to criminality, that actually heads off potential aggression in the future because people become less likely to mess with me if they don't think that Gain I'm respect. soft. Exactly. So now, if I'm perceived as soft, however, then I'll get picked on, I might get robbed, I'll be singled out, I'll be beat up. And so it actually pays in some parts of the country to have this kind of tough guy persona. And the problem with that is, is that it can have deleterious consequences. It can put you in situations that you don't actually really want to be in mm -hmm. because eventually there's going to be somebody out there who's going to pull your card yeah. and you will be forced to fight and maybe you didn't really want to. And, you know, the fact of the matter is that crime is itself criminogenic, right? We talk about the criminogenic impact of yeah. prison. But, you know, if you have a fight in a really high crime neighborhood, it doesn't necessarily end there. Mm -hmm. You know, that turns into, well, next time my friends see, you know, the guy that beat me up, we're going to jump him. And then they're going to come back and jump one of our guys. And then maybe it escalates into a shooting. And now we've got this retaliatory cycle of violence that only happened because of that one fight or because of, you know, a social media diss when someone, you know, by virtue of that culture feels mm -hmm. like I have to respond to this, right? I mean, you'll see there's a, a famous rapper, uh, Takashi 69 is his name, and he's got all these tattoos on his face and his hair is a bunch of oh, different Yeah, colors. I listen to yeah. him all the time. Yeah. Just kidding. I have no idea who that is. You know, but there was this episode where, you know, he went into this really dangerous gang territory in Chicago and filmed himself, you know, uh, talking about O-Block and, you know, this is no block, there's nobody outside, uh -huh. right? And then puts it up on social media. And that's now seen as, you know, an affront to which that, you know, that has to be responded to. And that's the sort of subculture that is really driving a lot of this crime. I mean, I've, I've spent time with police officers in different departments around the country. And one of the things that I've heard consistently and I'm talking, you know, like Miami, Chicago, Los Angeles, New York, you name the city, and they are saying the same thing, which is that a lot of their shootings start online. Mm. It's well, I didn't Instagram. even think about that. It's, it's just another one yep. of those pitfalls of social media. Yep, yep. And so, you know, when you have this kind of culture that, you know, sort of um, uh, glorifies violence, right. that's going to really raise the stakes because if you continue to have people responding to social affronts violently, right. that is going to create the conditions that might tick off some of these retaliatory cycles of violence mm -hmm. and they get out of control very, very quickly. What's fascinating and possibly even ironic is the people who are pushing for this criminal justice reform are saying nothing about this culture. Yeah. But I think one of the other reasons we don't see a lot of people address the culture issues because it's not something that really lends itself to an obvious solution, right? Mm -hmm. I mean. There really isn't a policy prescription, mm -hmm. you know, that is sort of consonant with even, you know, conservative or libertarian thought that, you know, right. places the government in a position right. to affect the culture. We would never want yeah. that. Yeah. I mean, right. no one, you know, who in their heart of hearts actually thinks that the government knows what the right culture nope. is, let alone how to implement that right. and wants to give the government the kind of power that it would take, right? This is really one of those issues where the solution has to come from within. Right. The community has to look within and say, enough is enough. We're going right. to make this change. How do you get there? That's not a question well, I have. Well, part of it is to. also education. If they're miseducated yeah. and they're told that the only reason they're in prison is because the system is corrupt and set up against them, That's then right. you're actually pointing them in the wrong direction for a, a, an actual pragmatic solution, right? Yeah. And I think that's another big why it's so important that actually they read your book be, because if they want to solve the problems 
in their communities. If we want to solve our problems in, in downtown Los Angeles, we need to look at the real facts and not, you know, get distracted exactly. by, by you know, things that are not real problems. Yeah. I mean, look, rhetoric is powerful. It always has been, right? You know, stories mm -hmm. are powerful. And if you are a kid growing up and you've got, you know, two generations of parents and grandparents telling you that, you know, your position in this country is you know, as an oppressed person mm -hmm. and you're living within this infrastructure of white supremacy and they're never going to let you get anywhere. And then at the same time, you, you scroll through social media and you see these videos of viral mm -hmm. police incidents. The use of force looks really, really bad. You know, Tyree Nichols, jo George Floyd. And it becomes really easy to conclude like, oh, they're right. And so I'm going to disengage right. or I'm going to double down on this sort of alternative subculture that isn't really going to get me anywhere. And, and that's really tragic. And so, you know, what I really wanted to do with this book is kind of meet the other side where they are, right? Let's talk about disparities. Let's talk about, you know, the victims. Let's talk about these communities. Um, and hopefully in doing that in an honest way that elevates the data, that gently, um, but also forcefully, right? Like with, but without taking pleasure in like, you know, the two, I think there are too many people who just say like, you know, I'm right, we're going to own the libs, ha, ha, ha. And, yeah. they, you know, there's a place for that sometimes. I get it. Mm -hmm. I understand the instinct. But at the same time, you're not going to make progress if you convince the other side that you hate them. Right. Right. And that's something that I think conservatives today should really understand because, mm -hmm. you know, I live in New York City right now. Um, you know, we're in Los Angeles. There are lots of parts of this country where there's just open hostility to mm -hmm. anyone who expresses a conservative viewpoint. And so it's not crazy that, you know, conservatives around the country sort of come to the conclusion that the left just doesn't just disagree with them. It, you know, sort of hates them right. and, and, you know, resents their very existence. And but so you don't want to be guilty of that, too. And I think if you go about this conversation in the right way, be as honest and straightforward as you can about your reading of the data, we can make progress. And if we do that, I think we sort of discourage the kind of self-insulation that really provides a, a kind of breeding ground for the, the worst elements of, you know, a given culture. And, you know, if you can open up those doors and you can head off those cycles of violence by taking bad actors off the street, then you can start to make things better. And, you know, the reason I'm so confident in saying that is because it's something that we've already done in our relatively recent history. Mm -hmm. Again, right. 1990 New York, 2,262 murders. Right. 2017 New York, 292 murders. If you look at the growth the investments in the outer boroughs with mostly minority populations, places like the South Bronx and East Brooklyn, you know, it's been an enormous, just uplifting amount of change. Mm -hmm. These communities have grown and blossomed in ways that would never have even seemed fathomable to, you know, people who had been living for generations, you know, in places like the South Bronx through the 1980s. I mean, in the late 1980s, early 1990s, it would not have been unusual to walk around the South Bronx and see like an entire city block with maybe one standing structure. We're just, you know, vacant lots, you know, mm -hmm. collapsed buildings, dilapidated structures, no street lighting, you know, very few businesses, almost no CCTV cameras, very little foot traffic. As you get crime under control, you make these places more attractive to investment. Right. You see businesses pile up. What do right. businesses bring? They bring foot traffic. They bring car traffic which means more eyes on the street, which makes those places less conducive to certain kinds of crime. They bring better street lighting, more tax dollars, right. more CCTV cameras. All of this stuff discourages crime. And the built environment is important. There are studies right. showing that just greening a vacant lot will reduce shootings. Why? Mm -hmm. Because the vacant lot provides a physical environment that cannot be easily right. replicated somewhere else. There are only so many vacant lots in a neighborhood. 
Right. And the broken window theory, yes, right? People 100%. don't say, oh, why bother? Exactly. Right. right. If you communicate that someone is in charge of public spaces, mm-hmm. that Somebody gives cares. the pro-social parts of a community the confidence that they need to reassert themselves within those public spaces. Mm-hmm. Right. What happens in level in places with high levels of disorder, places like downtown Los Angeles, places like San Francisco, where you uh, you know have essentially surrendered public mm-hmm. spaces to open air drug dealing, open air drug totally. use, you know, tent cities, it communicates that no one's in charge here, right? If I'm walking down the street mm-hmm. and I see someone urinating on a sidewalk, yeah, right. The way that I process that psychologically is like, okay, that guy thinks he can get away with this because he's confident that no one's going to say anything to him. And he's right to be confident because he can get away with it. And if he can get away with that, he can get away with anything. Mm -hmm. And if he can get away with anything, I probably shouldn't be here because I'm not safe. And what happens? Pro-social people leave, and then those public spaces become increasingly more vulnerable, not just to disorder, but also to more serious kinds of crime, which is exactly what we see. And so it's just really frustrating because we're repeating the errors that we made in the 1970s and 80s, and we're eschewing the lessons that we learned in the 1990s and 2000s. It's like, we did this once. We can do it again. It's just a matter of political do you will. Feel, do you think that America is waking up? Do I live in a bubble? I mean, I just feel like everybody around me, including the classical liberals, they seem to be very upset about the crime because yeah. it is, as I mentioned earlier, it is coming into suburban sure. neighborhoods. It is impacting them. You know, women are scared to fill up gasoline. All of these things are they waking up? Are they connecting the dots? Are they realizing these progressive prosecutors are actually not serving our communities? Is this our time? Is this a time where people are going to actually start looking at it, not from the lens of re- left versus right, but actually the lens of common sense? Let's keep our neighborhood right. safe. Right. Like We want to live here, right? Is there is there any uh, glimpse of hope in the mayor of Chicago now being yeah, on, maybe? Maybe. <laughs> I mean, look, I think we're starting to see people pay attention but it's a long process, right? Even in the 1990s, it took a long time for people to finally come around. Things had to get really, really bad. You think even worse than they are now? I do. I do, unfortunately. Boy, um, this conversation. <laughs> it's not, yeah, it's not super, uh, it's not super hopeful. But look, you know, there's a there's a, a crime historian named Eric Monkinen that I quote in the, in the book. And sometime in the 1960s or even 50s, I think it was, he said that, you know, crime was going to follow a cyclical pattern, essentially, you know, crime would go up, that would inspire a kind of hardening of the criminal justice system, which would then cause crime to go down. And then as crime got really low, people would grow more and more uncomfortable with a robust enforcement mechanism in the light of, you know, a, a decreasing crime problem. And so they would start to erode the system and that would then create the conditions for the next crime rise, which is right. kind of where in the cycle I think right. we are. The hope is that every time the pendulum swings past the point of equilibrium, it doesn't go as far past the point of equilibrium as it did the last time. Mm. So I don't think it will take us as long as it took us in the 1990s to come back around to common sense. But I do think we have a little bit, uh, a little ways to go, especially in places like Los Angeles and San Francisco and Chicago and New York and Philadelphia, these kind of really deep blue enclaves where you, you have to overcome not just the sort of common sense inclinations of people living out in the suburbs and in the surrounding areas, but also you have to overcome the just unbridled radicalism of, you know, the blue hair and, you know, nose-ringed progressive, uh, you know, who who wants to see the system burn. Mm-hmm. Um, there's still a lot of that. They're super active. They have very loud megaphones um, and they drive policy still. Wow. Um, you know, just just look at what's been happening. Despite the crime rise, Lots of cities have still been pulling reform levers, right? Illinois is pushing forward with the Safety Act. Uh, New York has got a whole slew of new decarceration efforts that were just proposed in Albany. 
you know, they haven't rolled back the bail reform. They haven't rolled back the discovery reform. You know, in 2021, they passed a parole reform. I mean, more progressive prosecutors were elected to new offices in 2022. Others were reelected. You know, we haven't yet seen the backlash. Um, we haven't yet seen the worries that you're starting to see in your community translate into policy. I think it's going to take a while before that happens. Um, I just hope, you know, that people understand that the longer we wait, the more people are going to suffer and mm -hmm. die and be hurt. And, you know, again, it's not, and we talk a lot about homicides and, and shootings, as we should, that really serious offenses. But, you know, something like a burglary is still important. You walk into your house and it's mm -hmm. been emptied while you weren't there. Mm -hmm. Some people will never so feel scary. secure again in Very their house. Very violating. I mean, I know people who've moved yeah. because their house got robbed. It is getting scary. Yeah. And anybody who's listening now, what can Americans do to see this change happen as soon as possible. Educate yourself. Push back on the narrative. Don't let them get away with the idea that they have a monopoly on empathy for, you know, vulnerable communities. We care too. Mm -hmm. We care too. I'm, you know, uh, don't, don't tell me that I don't care about low-income minority communities. I do. And people need to have the courage to push back. You know, you're, yeah, you're probably going to get called a bigot or something like that. But don't let that phase you. We have to get involved. We have to push back. We have to show up in elections. Um, Especially the the local elections. Local elections. Right? Prosecutor races, they matter enormously. Judges, I know it's really easy to just vote, you know, D down the line or R down the line, but look into the candidates. Mm. Do a little homework. Get out there. And, you know, keep track of what's being proposed in your legislature or city council and make your voices heard. We got to um, do the work. You got to do the work. Otherwise, you know, there's a, there's a saying, you can either do politics or have politics done to you. Um, and in a lot of ways, this is a political problem, which means it requires a political solution. Um, the good news, I will leave you with one bit of good okay, news. Okay, good. The good news is that we have a pretty decent idea of what to do. We won on this issue in the past. Mm -hmm. We largely solved this problem in the past. That means that we can do it again. It's just a matter of whether or not we're going to learn from those lessons. Great. Well, thank, thank you. you. <laughs> it's great having <laughs> you here. Great to be here.